God is better. What do you really feel like has to be present in your life for you to be happy, for life to be worth living? Maybe if you were really honest, you'd have to admit that it's money or the acclaim of others or power or family, friends, even church. Is it God? Is he what you most desire and want? Is his presence the one indispensable thing you could not live without? The first part of the gospel prayer reflects on our assurance of God's acceptance of us in Christ. The second part of the prayer moves us to reflect on how great a treasure that acceptance is. How important is God's approval in your life? It's one thing to know that God has accepted you fully in Christ. It's another thing for that to become the weightiest and most defining reality in your life. The second part of the prayer goes like this. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. The second part of the gospel prayer deals with our propensity toward idolatry. Idol factories. An idol is whatever takes the place of God in our lives. An idol is whatever we feel like we could not live without. It is what we think is an absolute necessity for life and happiness. Idols are the things that we give the most weight to. They become so heavy that we can't imagine our lives without them. An idol is not necessarily a bad thing. It's often a good thing that we've made into a God thing that then becomes a bad thing to us. In Exodus 20, 1 through 5, God says that an idol is something that, A, we bow down to, which means it commands our obedience. It is something that, B, we serve, which means we pursue it because we feel like we couldn't live without it. As such, it controls our emotions. We are terrified at the prospect of not obtaining it. Finally, it is something that we see love more than God. God is jealous for our love, and if possessing something brings us more joy than God does, it has become an idol. Tim Keller has said that an idol is behind our loftiest dreams, our scariest nightmares, and our most unyielding emotions. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory, constantly latching godlike weight onto created things. Idolatry was behind the first sin, and it had been behind every sin since. So what is that for you? What have you given godlike weight in your life? I'm going to ask you some questions. If you answer these questions honestly, you'll probably start to see some recurring themes. These are most likely what you have substituted for God. The Idolatry Detector Test What one thing do you most hope is in your future? Career success, a certain salary, owning your own home, owning a second one at the beach, getting married, seeing your kids grow up to be successful, having the respect of your teammates going pro, being loved and respected by your colleagues. What is it that, without it, life would hardly seem worth living? What is the one thing you most worry about losing? What one thing could you just absolutely not get along without? Your family, your job, the love of your spouse, the respect of your kids. I used to obsess about my retirement investments because I was afraid I'd make some financial mistake, lose it all, and have to work an hourly wage greeting people at the front entrance of Walmart. Money in the bank is a security I often feel like I need for the good life, so I often worry about losing it. 
Sometimes I fear losing my influence in my church. I fear that as I get older, I'll lose my edge and people will quit coming to hear me preach. I have this recurring nightmare where I show up one Sunday morning and everyone has gone to a new church where a hotter new preacher is lighting it up. I show up in the big auditorium and it's just me and my wife. And she is sitting on the front row listening to a sermon by Matt Chandler on her iPod. I'm not saying we should be excited or even apathetic about losing any of these things. The question is whether or not they are so valuable to us that their loss would be unsustainable. If you could change one thing about yourself right now, what would it be? Would you lose 30 pounds? Would you change your looks, your marital status, your job, your zip code? Would you have your kids come home? Whatever you come up with, you probably want to change that thing because you think that if you did, you'd be so much happier. There's certainly nothing wrong with desiring to change our lives, but when we couldn't imagine being happy unless something changes, we have an idol. What thing have you sacrificed most for? Sacrifice and worship almost always go hand in hand. What have you worked the hardest for? To get scholarships? To obtain the perfect body? To land the job? To be the best in your field? To get to a certain income level? What you prize most is shown by what you pursue the hardest. Who is there in your life that you feel like you can't forgive and why? An ex-husband ruined your reputation and stole the best years of your life? Your wife who cheated on you and publicly humiliated you? An irresponsible or unethical partner who ruined your business? A close friend who stole your boyfriend? A drunk driver who killed your child? Many times, our inability to forgive is connected to the fact that someone took away from us something we feel like we can't be happy without. There's nothing wrong with regretting deeply the loss of any of those things. When you cannot forgive someone, however, it is usually because they took something from you that you depended on for life, happiness, and security. They stole something from you that you think you can, can never be replaced, and you cannot stop hating them for it. What has left you bitter? What has happened in your past that you just can't shake? Were you overlooked for a promotion or cheated out of an opportunity? Was it being abused by a parent or being betrayed by a spouse or friend? Bitterness is almost always tied to idolatry. Someone took something from you that you thought was necessary for life. When do you feel the most significant? When do you hold your head up the highest? What is there that you hope people find out about you? Do you constantly mention your job or the job you think you're going to have when you graduate or where you got your degree from? Are you always looking for ways to show off your house or car? Does your heart soar with pride when you talk about your kids? If you're a pastor, do you love it when people ask you how big your church is or do you hate it because it's small? Do you love it when people compare you positively to other pastors? Your idolatry is whatever makes you feel the most significant. What makes you feel the most significant is what you put the most weight upon. What triggers depression in you? That your kids never call? The fact that your marriage doesn't look like it's ever going to get better? Is it that you have reached a certain age and still aren't married? Is it when you don't get the recognition you know you deserve? Is it how little you've accomplished? Is it that no matter how hard you try, your church still won't grow? 
Depression is triggered when something we deemed essential for life and happiness is denied. Please note, I'm not trying to gloss over some of the, the physiological factors in depression. Often there are some, and I am simply saying that sometimes our depression is fueled by our idolatry. Where do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? Maybe you bury yourself in your work to numb the fact that your wife ignores you and your kids are drifting away from you. Or perhaps you find escape in the arms of a lover. Some sensual pleasure, like pornography or comfort food, perhaps alcohol or a drug. Maybe you turn inward to some truth about yourself that comforts you. I've often comforted myself in disappointment by reminding myself of some talent I had. In high school, when I was depressed because my athletic career was not taking off, I told myself my academic ability set me apart. My wife struggled with a mild eating disorder in college. She felt like she needed to have a great body to have any real worth. But she also found comfort in food. She'd get depressed because she didn't see how she could be happy if she didn't lose weight. And her depression drove her to comfort food. It was a vicious cycle created by the fact that two of her gods were in conflict with one another. Do those questions reveal certain patterns in your life? St. Augustine said that things like worry, fear, sadness, and deep depression are smoke from the fires rising from the altars of our idolatry. Follow the trail of that smoke, and you'll see where you have substituted something for God. Trying to make God an accomplice in our idolatry. Astoundingly, we often try to make God an accomplice in our pursuit of our idols. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said that sometimes when we pray, we don't get what we ask for because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? We can pray like adulterers. That's a pretty disturbing analogy, but what does it mean? An adulterer is someone who finds in another the intimacy they should be finding in their spouse. We are adulterers to God when we demand that he give us certain things so that we can find a happiness, contentment, and security in these things that really we should be finding in him. God, I just have to be married or I'll be miserable. God, we just have to have children. God, why haven't you healed me? It's not fair. God, I have to get into medical school. Asking for any of the above things is not incorrect, but when our joy depends on obtaining those things, we have become spiritual adulterers. We have given a weightiness that we should be giving to God to something else, and we're asking God to help us in the process of obtaining those things. Imagine if I said to my wife, sweetheart, you remember that on July 28, 2000, you vowed to meet my romantic and sexual needs? Yes, I continue. Well, I have decided that what I need to be fulfilled romantically and sexually is to have an affair. Can you arrange that for me? How is my wife likely to react to that proposition? If you don't know her, be assured that's probably the last conversation I'd ever have, period. When we got married, she vowed to satisfy these desires in herself. She didn't sign up to become my pimp. Needless to say, God will not be anybody's pimp. Our idols leave us empty. Ultimately, idols leave us empty because our hearts were created for God. To use the words of the 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, God created our hearts with a vacuum. 
We search for something to fulfill our deepest cravings, but nothing on earth works because the vacuum was created by the absence of God. Anything we substitute for God in that place leaves us still yearning. Or as St. Augustine put it, You have made us for yourself, Lord. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Your heart was created in such a way that only the eternal love of God can satisfy it. A marriage partner, no matter how perfect for you, cannot play the role of God in your life. Remember that scene in Jerry Maguire where Tom Cruise says to Renee Zellweger, You complete me? Most of us dream about finding someone who completes us, who makes all our unhappiness, insecurity, and meaninglessness go away. After watching a number of marriages come together and break apart over the years, I can confidently say that insecure, lonely, single people become insecure, lonely, married people. Problems like loneliness and insecurity are not cured by another human. They are only cured by God. Your soul was created first and foremost for God, not for romance. Your marriage partner, no matter how perfectly suited for you, can never play the role of God in your life. What happens in most marriages is that you have a girl floating in a sea of loneliness and despair when along comes a 6'5", studly, well-built life preserver. And, of course, she does what any drowning person would do. She clings to him for dear life. And she suffocates the life out of him because he, try as he may, can't meet those needs in her life. He wasn't designed to. Only God can. We weren't created for another human. We were created for God. Money, another idol of choice, can't satisfy us either. Like marriage, money can be a great blessing from God. But money cannot provide lasting security or genuine fulfillment. Just look at the people who have money. Do they look secure, happy, and fulfilled? Years ago, I heard of a Fortune 500 CEO who said, I spent all my life climbing the ladder of success, only to find out it was leaning against the incorrect building. Whatever idol you choose, the result will still be the same. Idols promise fulfillment, but deliver disillusionment. And that's just the beginning. Idolatry also produces anxiety and fear in our hearts. We live afraid, knowing that if our idol is taken from us, life will be miserable. The economy might crash again, wiping out what little is left in our retirement. We might never get married. Our business might fail. A loved one might get cancer. But 1 John 4.18 says that only perfect love casts out fear. Idols can't love perfectly, but God can. God's love is perfect in A, its intensity towards us. God could not love us more than he already does. B, its ability to satisfy us. We are created to be satisfied fully by the love of God and its control of all things in our lives. We know that God, who controls all the universe, loves us and will never leave us and is in controlling every molecule in the universe to work out his good and perfect plan for our lives. Resting in his perfect love drives out any fear and worry. No idol can ever give you that because no idol is that loving, that fulfilling, or that powerful. Jesus satisfies. Jesus is the one essential thing that we must have. He is life itself. Jesus is better than money. God owns all the money and he's our father. He promises to give us whatever we need and God never crashes or dips below 10,000. Jesus is better than human love. 
you and I have never experienced tenderness and affection like God showed to us when he took us in his arms at the cross. Jesus is better than any earthly pleasure. God is the fountain of all pleasure. Earthly pleasures, C.S. Lewis famously said, are supposed to function like rays of the sun that direct us back to their source. As the ray warms our face, we look back up along the ray to its source. Marriage, sex, money, children, friends, good food are all shadows and reflections of true goodness. For a while, some cloud may obstruct a ray from hitting our face. We might remain single when we'd like to be married. We might be poor when we'd like to be rich. Death may take one of our children. The rays of the sun will at times be shielded from our eyes, but the sun itself remains. After the first date I went on with my wife, a friend asked me the next day what I thought about her. I ripped out a piece of notebook paper and scribbled down some 60-plus adjectives that described her. I put down one-word descriptions of her personality, her smile, her mind, even her toes. I showed it to him and said, that's what I thought about her. I'm going to marry her. After we got engaged, I went back and found that piece of paper and had it framed. On our wedding day, I gave it to her with the caption under it, you represent something that can never be taken away from me. I know she herself could be taken away, but she represents something that can never be taken away from me. And that is the beauty and love of the Father God. As Jonathan Edwards said, pleasure is the ray. God's love is the sun. Pleasure is the shadow. God's love is the substance. Pleasure is the stream. God's love is the ocean. Jesus is better than earthly power. There's no greater sense of empowerment than to know the sovereign God who directs every molecule in the universe is working in all things for our good. That is real power. Jesus is better than popularity. What good is earthly fame if you are famous only to a bunch of nobodies? To be known and honored by the God of the universe, that is better than the approbations of millions of little no-account earthlings. John Piper, after giving a list similar to the one I gave above, says, And on and on it goes. Everything the world has to offer, God is better and more abiding. There is no comparison. God wins every time. Our ability to be joyful in all things is the measure of how much we believe the gospel. Sometimes we know that Christ has taken all of our sin but his approval just doesn't carry that much weight in our lives. Other things matter more to us. The amount which you understand the gospel is measured by your ability to be joyful in all circumstances. If you grasp what a treasure the presence and acceptance of God are, then even when life goes really wrong, you will have a joy that sustains you because you'll recognize the value of what you have in him. When life punches you in the face, you'll say, but I still have the love and acceptance of God, a treasure I don't deserve. And the joy you find in the treasure can make you rejoice even when you have a bloody nose. You have a joy that death and deprivation cannot touch. That is why Paul could say from the confines of a Roman prison, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. If the coach is happy, I am happy. When I was in college, I coached a 12-year-old boys soccer team. We were pretty good, and we had gone through the season undefeated. My band of 12-year-old studs strutted into the playoff season with undaunted confidence. The first playoff game was held at night, and no one on the team, including me, thought defeat was possible. 
Well, we got crushed. The final score didn't really reflect it. We only lost 3-1. to one, But the other team absolutely dominated the field of play. And the worst of it was that their star player was <laughs> a girl. She was the greatest 12-year-old player I had ever seen. She dominated. She took shot after shot on the goal, and I was sick of it. So with about 10 minutes left to go in the second half, down 2-1, to one, I pulled out one of our defensive players and told him, David, I'm sick and tired of that girl getting all those shots on goal. Me too, coach. David, you have one assignment for the rest of the game, and it is that girl. Whenever she comes within 15 yards of our penalty box with the ball, I want her on her rear end. You understand that? Yes, sir, coach. I mean it, David. She is your whole responsibility. You understand me? David, I don't care if the guy next to you burst into flames. That is not your responsibility. She is. I got it, coach. As David turned around to go back on the field, I said, David, do it legally. We had worked on this in practice, the glorious slide tackle. It was now our only hope. With just five minutes left to go in the game, female Maradona got the ball about midfield and began to make her way down the right side. She went through our left fullback like he was invisible. She cut her way back to the center, and she did something there to the stopper. I'm not sure what, but the next thing I knew, he was in the fetal position crying for his mama. Now just her, the sweeper, and the goalie. She pump faked with her right leg, and both the sweeper and the goalie fell on the ground. Either that or they were just evaporated. I'm still not sure which. But now it was just her and a wide-open goal, and then, behold, he came. Out of the left side of my peripheral vision, an orange blur appeared, moving silently, stealthily, but at full speed, David, the obedient 12-year-old defender. Tractor beam locked on her, bearing down with deadly precision. He hit her from behind in the full spread eagle attack position. There was a thud, a cloud of dust, and then silence. Eerie silence. Somewhere in the distance, a vulture crooned. I might be adding a few details to this story from dramatic flair, but you get the drift. It was one of those moments when everyone was like, did that just happen? And then all at once, almost as if a movie director had suddenly yelled action, everyone erupted into anger. Their team was angry because they thought we tried to take out their star player. The referee was angry, trying to figure out if it was appropriate to give a 12-year-old a red card and throw him out for the season. Our team was angry because they realized David had just handed them a penalty kick in the penalty box, which they were sure to score on. The soccer moms were angry because they thought Psycho Coach sent in this poor little kid to go angry birds on an innocent girl. David slowly stood up and, like a perfect little gentleman, helped the girl up. Then, to my horror, turned to me and gave me a grin and a big thumbs up, removing all doubt from the parents as to who was behind this attack. All I could hear in my mind was the term lawsuit. I pulled David out of the game and asked, David, what were you thinking? What's wrong with you, son? David looked up at me in perfectly innocent 12-year-old face and said, Coach, but you told me to take her out illegally. David thought the last thing I told him as he went into the game was to take this girl out illegally. Take her out, David, and David make it nasty. There is at least one thing that is very impressive, touching even about David's obedience. David knew there could be severe consequences for his action. He knew it would cost us a penalty kick. He knew he'd probably get a red card. He knew he'd probably get grounded by his parents and maybe even jumped on the playground after the game. But he didn't care really about any of those things. What did he care about? My approval. In his little warped 12-year-old mind, he thought, 
coach is my hero. It doesn't matter what else happens. If the coach is happy, I am happy. He was willing to face whatever consequences if I was pleased with him. Jesus is to carry that kind of weight in our lives. Obedience to him is costly, but his presence and approval are worth anything we forsake or any consequence we incur. He really is that glorious. He is the treasure worth forsaking all else to obtain. Freed to enjoy the rest. Learning to be satisfied in Jesus will free you to enjoy everything else. Being fulfilled in Christ means that you no longer depend on other things for life and happiness. That means you can enjoy them because you are no longer enslaved to them. The prospect of losing doesn't terrorize you, and you can say no to them when, you, when they are not in God's will. The great irony is that you really only begin to enjoy money, romance, and sex when you don't depend on them for life. C.F. Lewis said it like this, In life, there are first things, God, and second things, everything else. If you put the first things first, you'll also get the second things. If you put second things first, you'll not only lose the first things, but you'll lose the second things too. When Jesus is your life, you can start to enjoy the rest of your life. When you are satisfied with God's presence and approval in your life, you will no longer obsess about what everyone else thinks about you. You can quit hiding your faults and start living with authenticity. Letting people see the real you, the you with all the faults and warts because you no longer depend on their admiration for personal fulfillment. It is a revolutionary, liberating truth. In Christ, you have all you need for everlasting joy. His approval and presence are all that you need for life and happiness. He is the only one who should play the role of God in our lives. He has no equals, no partners, and doesn't want to share the office of God with anyone. If you're like me, you probably need to remind yourself of that every day. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy.